You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Tuesday, April 3rd, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies hosted a discussion titled, The Future of Chinese Civil Society and Foreign NGOs. Mark Seidel, Doyle Baskin Professor of Law and Public Affairs at the University of Washington, and Wang Gongmei, a practicing lawyer at a Beijing law firm, spoke. Anthony Sage, Ash Center Director and Daewoo Professor of International Affairs, moderated. Let's listen in. Okay, thank you uh, very much uh, for coming to spend some time with us uh, to discuss this important topic. I just got a couple of announcements to make uh, before we start. First of all, there's, uh, uh, the talk uh, today is co-sponsored with the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. And also, today's talk is on the record. It is being recorded and then is going to be available to the public through uh, the Ash uh, Center website. I think one of the most interesting things in China in recent years has been the rise of philanthropy and giving. And uh, I think the rise of wealth within China and the capacity of Chinese nationals to give has also had an impact on the way the government is looking at the role of foreign organizations and foreign foundations. And I would think of the year 2016 really as the year of two laws. And they, they in the sense, uh, create a legitimate space for the philanthropic sector, both I think, for uh, Chinese domestic organizations, but also for uh, foreign organizations. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the issues of this shortly. Uh, the law may appear restrictive in some ways. It may not be an ideal law, but it is a law. And it does mean that in that sense, it gives a legitimacy and finally a place for foreign organizations to operate in China, which replaces the very ad hoc somewhat chaotic situation that existed before. But I think there's a crucial distinction between the two laws. The one is the charities law, which primarily governs uh, the way that uh, Chinese uh, organizations will operate. And again, it legitimizes that sector. The Communist Party has finally come to the conclusion uh, that that new wealth exists. And then it wants to make sure it structures the giving in certain ways but it also loosens uh, a lot of restrictions which had been there before. By contrast, the foreign NGO law, which has been in effect for over a year now, um, still keeps uh, some of the restrictions and regulations that were there for foreign organizations operating previously. But we're now into over a year uh, of the operation of that new law. So we thought today it was now a good opportunity uh, for us to be able to think together about what has been happening, what are some of the consequences of it, uh, what are some of the advantages being, and what are some of the, the challenges uh, which exist moving forward. And we're really lucky uh, today to have with us uh, two people to share their views uh, on this subject who really thought deeply about these questions. The first there to my left is uh, Mark Seidel. Mark is the Doyle Bascom Professor of Law and Public Affairs at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, he, in my view, is really uh, the most knowledgeable person here 
in the States who's been thinking about the development of the sector. He started off in a very practical experience uh, in the 1980s working with Ford Foundation. But then he's been a consultant. He's written extensively uh, on these questions of not-for-profit law and really has been helping a lot of people try and think through both uh, organizations but also uh, groups in the Chinese government about how this uh, not-for-profit law for foreign NGOs uh, will be operating. And so we'll hear from Mark shortly. And then to my immediate left, we're very lucky to have Wang Yongmei, or Yongmei Wang, uh, who is uh, very practically engaged uh, in this work as a lawyer at the Beijing Huayi uh, law firm, where she's really focused on public interest law in, in a variety of different areas. She's also been a program officer and a Siegel le legal official in Pilnet's Beijing office for a number of years. But she's done a lot of things that have worked around advice and training uh, within uh, this particular sector. So she has tremendous experience of engagement within the context uh, of China. So I think we're very lucky to have the two of them to share their ideas with us uh, today. And what we'll do is we'll have each of them just talk to us for their own perspectives for five or six minutes uh, and... Uh, then uh, we'll have plenty of time to make sure we open up for discussion and comments uh, and question uh, from people on the floor. So perhaps, Mark, if you want to start us off. Thank you, Tony. Uh, delighted to be here, and I know Yongmei is delighted to be here. <coughs> um, I'll just talk for about five or seven minutes, mostly about the overseas NGO law and um, a bit of the background to the overseas NGO law. I assume this is fine, whoever's controlling this. And um, then turn it over to Yongmei, and then we'll open it up uh, and whatever questions Tony has. Um, the area of foreign NGOs and foundations in China has long been a contested area. You know all that. <clears throat> but there was a particular contestation that came to a decision point in about 2012-2013. Were these organizations to be considered humanitarian and civil organizations and to remain more or less under the authority, the weak authority, the weak jurisdictional authority of the Ministry of Civil Affairs, Min Zhengbu? Were they to be considered a kind of corporate or business organization and more authority move over to the Administration for Industry and Commerce or other types of government agencies. Were they to be considered a topic for national security? With a series of um, power and jurisdiction-related questions that would flow from a decision that they were a national security topic. <coughs> a phrase that comes out better in Chinese than it does in English. And of course, as we all know now, and it was pretty clear at the time, the decision was made in 2002 12, 2013, very clearly that overseas NGOs and foundations fit within the national security rubric and came within the jurisdiction of the new National Security Council or commission that was formed in Beijing <coughs> in 2012 with activities ramping up in 2012, 2013, and 2014. So the fundamental decision which has sort of led to where the foreign foundations and NGOs are today. I use foreign and overseas interchangeably, but we actually shouldn't. 
Um, the better term is overseas because it includes Hong Kong and Taiwan for certain purposes. But even that, of course, isn't fully accurate in English. But I'm going to use it interchangeably, and you may, may as well. Uh, having decided, um, and I'm just saying a paragraph or two about this. I've written at much more length about this. Um, having decided that this was a national security issue and to be treated as a national security issue under Xi Jinping, not as a civil humanitarian type of organization, not as a business organization to be governed by business rules, then the question came, who's going to run it? Meaning, who's going to take control of this sector? Given that the perception in China, at least by the National Security Council, National Security Commission folks at that point was, that this was a pretty chaotic, a pretty launch sector uh, with lots of organizations, registered or unregistered, doing their thing in Beijing, Shanghai, out in Yunnan, and across the country. The perception from the foreign organizations was actually different, uh, that working in China was difficult, getting legalized was difficult, getting registered was difficult. But of course, the Chinese perception won out, which is that it was time to control and put this together under one roof so that one agency was responsible for knowing what was going on and keeping control of the sector and keeping the organizations out that China wanted to keep up. And as I think everyone who's here who's followed this knows, <coughs> that was then turned over to the Ministry of Public Security. And the last quarter of 2014 was not an easy quarter for those in the Ministry of Public Security who were told during that quarter that jurisdiction over this field of foreign NGOs and foundations was now definitively moving from the Ministry of Civil Affairs and other organizations to the Ministry of Public Security. They didn't know much. There are still some topics on which they still don't have the level of knowledge they need to have. But in the last quarter of 2014, they didn't know much. And they were tasked with coming up with an omnibus or framework law to govern this sector under their control within a year, which they did on the basis of some work that had been done by the Ministry of Civil Affairs. Most of the rest of the sort of outlines of the story, probably most people here know, that was presented to the National People's Congress. There was skepticism. There was angry comment from abroad, etc. And then it was passed in April of 2016, went into effect on January 1st, 2017, I'm conflating a story, but it's a story, at least in part, about institutional capacity and institutional discretion at the Ministry of Public Security and what the Ministry of Public Security reporting to the National Security Commission then did about this new area under its control. And at some level, as opposed to the charity law, this is much more a question of state discretion than state legitimization or state recognition of a sector. Um, what Ministry of Public Security has done over the past 15 months is very effectively taken control of this entire area of foreign NGOs or overseas NGOs and foundations. Stop me, Tony, whenever I should stop. Um, um, uh, mandated registration. Um, effectively forced out a very small group of organizations <coughs> that were already on a watch list uh, at public security and state security before that. Um, for the most part, in a discretionary function, welcomed most of these organizations to register in China, and in effect 
put them in the box of the overseas NGO and foundations law, overseas NGO law, so that over time more restrictions, programmatic restrictions, domestic leadership restrictions, can be placed on these organizations. But the first step, the short-term goal, was to gather these organizations under the umbrella of the Ministry of Public Security at the central level and at the provincial level uh, to follow the mandate that was set by the National Security Council, which was to take this national security topic, overseas NGOs and foundations, and pull them all together under one roof. That was a hard task for public security. But they are a competent organization, and they have actually, from their perspective, done a good job of this. And there's a number of foreign foundations and non-governmental organizations that are actually relatively happy for now with the situation. Organizations whose situation was in limbo before have now become registered and legalized. Organizations whose ability to work across provinces or across fields, have now been more formally recognized as being able to do that, especially in the case, uh, especially in the face of fears in 2016 and 2017 that they were going to be substantially limited in what they could do. So the first stage, the short-term stage, the discretionary stage of recognizing these organizations, putting them under one roof, and the public security ministry on behalf of the National Security Commission and the party in government knowing what they're doing has been successful. The longer-term discretionary strategy will be, already is, if you talk to certain organizations in Beijing and other parts of China, to begin over time molding what the organizations do in China. And we're already beginning to see that. Organizations that worked primarily on service delivery issues with some policy advocacy are gradually beginning to be told that the advocacy side of what they do will probably no longer be approved in future years, or that some aspects of the advocacy agenda may not be approved. So we have short-term and we have long-term goals. The short-term goals have been effectively addressed by the Ministry of Public Security in the terms in which they define success, <coughs> and importantly in the terms in which the National Security Commission and others define success. The longer-term goals involving putting the overseas NGOs and foundations in a box, a relatively flexible box right this minute, uh, but a box in which we are likely to see some programmatic narrowing, pressure on organizations to um, adhere to certain priorities, such as One Belt, One Road, and other domestic priorities of the party and government, and pressure to indigenize leadership um, and take other steps uh, in the operational realm. I think I've, I, I would have more to say about this, as Tony knows and Yongmei knows, but I think I've done my five to seven minutes, and I'm going to stop with that story and turn it over to Yongmei. Yeah, I think uh, just before Yongmei, I mean, I think that's uh, it's an important uh, oversight, I think, and I think it's, it fits with the general trend of what we've been seeing in China that, you know, I think in more than Xi Jinping's regime, even going back before that, we've kind of seen the tidying up of society taking place, that there was a period where a lot of things were allowed to rip, whether it was in this sector, whether it's in the private sector, 
And I think what we've seen sort of sequentially is the party beginning to reorganize in a more traditional Leninist fashion to bring things as far as they can back within control. And I think we've seen it in the private sector of the economy, uh, trying to get control over those sectors where they felt uh, things have got out of control. I think Bolton Road is clearly putting state-owned enterprises at the core uh, of those areas. And I... And so I think, you know, what you're saying sort of strikes home to me about, you know, the first phase of this was let's get a structure in place uh, which allows us to get the oversight, and then we move on to phase two, which is more directing towards what they can and what they cannot do. And I think the charities law, which mainly affects sort of domestic foundations and giving, I think really... Um, begins to put that in place for what we see for what Chinese groups can do in itemizing a series of activities, which to a large extent are to be supportive of Chinese government aims and uh, objectives. And so those, as you say, things that fall more into the policy advocacy or organizing around marginalized groups, those are clearly being told, no, you'll come under greater scrutiny and maybe your activities will be uh, terminated. I think this has consequences for how we view civil society in China, which we'll maybe come back to uh, in a moment. But, Yongwei, why don't you first share your thoughts, and then we'll come back to some of these bigger issues. Okay. Uh, thank you, Professor uh, Sitch. And uh, it's been a great honor for me to be here and be the Professor Saito on this topic. So today's topic is the future of the Chinese civil society and the foreign NGOs. But we all know the future is built on the past and what we do today. So actually, I'm not so good at the forcing things because what happened in China recently cannot be forcing by anybody. It was shocked. So actually, I would like to share some of my observations on what happened in the past for the foreign NGOs and the civil societies. So actually, uh, both professors are real experts uh, who know what happened for the foreign NGOs in China in the past because they were the first group of people worked with the foreign NGO and were in China in late of the 80s and mid of the 90s. But from my point of view, at that time, actually the foreign NGO bring a lot of fundings and they provide a lot of support and service to the, um, uh, the disadvantaged people uh, or disadvantaged communities, which the Chinese government at that time did not realize that or cannot do that. So actually, that is the main function of the foreign NGOs. But besides that, or in addition to that part, I would like to say at that time, I can feel that the foreign NGO really got a lot of respect and the positive cooperation and, um, I should say, uh, cooperation with the government. Because foreign NGOs, they have the good reputation, and they organized a big conference trainings and even the compared study tour. They can invite the officials from the, even from the Legislative Committee of the National People's Congress, from the Supreme Court, uh, from the central or different level, the governmental departments. So really, the foreign NGOs can influence the, oh, they invited the people from uh, all over of the universities. So the foreign NGOs really influence the people. We call it the think tank persons. So they have the huge impact on the Chinese society changes by influence those people's open their mind. 
But we all know, realized that that situation has been changed in 2012 and 2014. So, uh, but uh, finally, by the uh, I think 2017, we had a new law. We called it international or overseas NGOs management in mainland of the China law. So, which law actually uh, definitely reshaped uh, what the foreign NGO can do in China? For example, actually, after that law, the foreign NGO need, I think, uh, for those foreign NGOs who would like to get the registration, who definitely need to adjust their mission in China because they need to get approval from the PSU uh, before they get the registration with the National Security Department. But the PSU actually have their own priorities. Yes, it's assigned. They are not willing to do that. They are assigned to be that. So actually, they have their own priorities. And uh, those priorities consistent with the government target or the purpose. So actually, the, for the foreign NGO who would like to registration, they definitely adjust their mission to have the consistent priorities with PSU. And the PSU expect that they do some uh, their function job by foreign fundings. That is the first point. And the second point is actually the foreign NGO cannot, uh, oh, can only cooperate with the registered domestic NGOs. But we all know, oh, majority of us know that in China actually um, a lot of grassroots NGO registered as a company or have none any registration. So which means the foreign NGOs cannot continue to work with those organizations. They can only work with the uh, registered uh, organizations according to the current law and the regulations. And the third point is the foreign NGOs cannot do the fundraising. So we all know that China, because the economic grows so quickly, we are GDP is not the low income country. We are in the middle income country. We realized a lot of international funding is cutting off. So actually, but those foreign NGOs can really rely on their headquarters funding. They cannot do the fundraising in China if they have a great projects and programs. And at the same time, the progress of the registration makes things getting slow and slow. Uh, before the implementation of the INGO law, some data showed that uh, estimated of the foreign NGO active in China is 10,000 across of the China. But by the end of the last month, according to the China file data, it's only 353 NGO got the registration. So compared with the number, so compared with the funding came into China and be active. So that is what the change or what happened for the foreign NGO in China in recent uh, three to five years. So how about the Chinese civil society? Uh, when we talk about the Chinese civil society, actually it's, the, uh, it's not a very developed concept. It's not been a long history. Uh, so actually it is uh, combined or mixed a lot of uh, concept. For example, is the philosophy, is the public interest, is the non-profit or non-governmental. Oh, we, if we from the taps, we have the foundations which can do the fundraising in the public and which are not allowed to the uh, fundraising in public. And we have the association and we have the private non-enterprise organization. We have the grassroots NGO registered as a company. We have the individuals. But from the function, 
are usually divided into the civil society, into the uh, charitable giving and uh, empowerment and advocacy. So for the charitable giving and empowerment work, I think it can be uh, still continue because that is consistent with the governmental priorities. But uh, what about the advocacy work, which is the NGO would like to participate in the legislation uh, by submitting their legal opinion, by filing the public interest litigation, and also they would like to draft some report uh, to just uh, supervise how the government and uh, the, uh, the law legislation implementation. Because those uh, advocacy NGOs, we call it the grassroots NGO, most of them don't get any registration or registered as the company. And the majority of their funding in the past uh, 20 or more than 10 years is mainly from the foreign NGOs. But uh, as we all know that the number of the NGOs is sharply reduced and the funding is reduced. So actually it has a huge and a serious impact for those advocacy NGOs to survive. That is what is happening now in China for those kind of the NGO who do the, who provide the advocacy work for the civil society. So I will end now. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of issues uh, come out of this. I think both presentations uh, point to a number of questions. I suppose one thing just uh, first uh, you, yeah. you make. The, the grassroots organizations in relationship to the foreign NGOs, but we are now seeing a tremendous growth in uh, Chinese wealth and also Chinese desire yeah. for giving. We just actually had these last three weeks yeah. uh, a group of 40 philanthropists here that we were doing an executive program with. And it seemed to me that many of them were picking up on some of those things that you were saying foreign groups were doing. We had groups uh, working with abandoned children. We had groups working with uh, uh, left, uh, your left behind children in villages. So, I mean, do you think that there is the capability that, that actually Chinese groups will pick up sense what is now being vacated by, say, foreign organizations? Um, that is a real good question. I would like to say that, uh, actually, uh, the grassroots NGO had a few relationships with the government, and they have a very few support from the foundation, I mean, the domestic foundations, because actually the domestic foundations, they have their historical development. They have the strong relationship with the government. So they prefer to do some priorities from the government rather than to support the grassroots NGOs. And also, because the grassroots NGO, they do some advocacy work, so the foundations, first of all, they, some foundations, they don't trust the grassroots NGO's capacity. Mm -hmm. And second, some uh, foundations, they think support the grassroots NGO will get angry by some local or central government. Then the foundations will lose the good relationship and connection with the government. So they hesitate to contact with the grassroots NGO. They prefer some registered uh, domestic NGO, which majority of them provide the service. Mm -hmm. Oh, they solve the poverty, health issue. So 
for those advocacy grassroots NGO, they still cannot get any support from the domestic foundations. I mean, the charitable organizations who have the huge money. Uh, but uh, actually, uh, as I mentioned, that the foundations divided two types. One is the who can do the public fundraising. Another one is, I think, from the 2008 from the Wenchuan earthquake. Mm -hmm. At that time, the situation had a little bit changed because at that moment, a lot of the foundations, NGOs, grassroots NGOs just came to Wenchuan and they worked together. And then some private uh, foundations, they realized that they can rely on some grassroots NGO service. And they started to build some uh, cooperation with the grassroots NGO. But uh, it is still some uh, I, th I should say the knowledge gap between the domestic foundation and the foreign NGOs. For example, actually the domestic foundations, even they have the huge programs, they have the huge money, they don't want to support the staff, I mean the salary, uh, the rent of the office. Uh, they don't prefer you have the long-term impact program. They hope they can be the one-year program, and they hope it's only support the program, but uh, no human. We call it the zero uh, charitable things, which means that we don't need the human being to do that. The, we don't need to pay the salary. So actually, it is the, some, some, I should say, the old mind still in the domestic foundations yeah, mind. Okay, so yeah. That needs to be changed. Okay, thanks. Mark, when, as I was listening to you, and it seems more than I perhaps realized before that there's a thought-out strategy to this, um, you know, developing from the discussions as Xi Jinping took over, 2012, 2013, and almost a two-phase strategy for uh, public security in, in how they're going to over, oversee this. Would you say... As I listen to you and as I read things about this, I begin to come to the conclusion that what we're going to see in China is that the third sector is going to expand enormously. And I think the charity law sets up for that. Third sector, what I mean in the sense of, I think, what Jung Mei is pointing to, of uh, organizations <coughs> providing uh, service delivery, in a sense, filling in and helping government uh, where government perhaps can't reach, but where government priority areas uh, are being indicated. But if we think of it in terms of the way we use the phrase of civil society in the West, in our realm of freedom of association, different ideas being expressed, that we're going to see that radically uh, reduced. Is that a reasonable summation of what you're seeing and what you're thinking about? I wind up giving a fair number of talks, including one at Nanjing University last week, on the theme of more third sector, less civil society, and that's what we're seeing in China. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not occurring on its own. That's occurring as the result of a strategy. Um, and that plays out in a certain way with the foreign NGOs and foundations as well. Um, China's more comfortable with... Uh, foreign NGOs and foundations that work on party and government priorities and that work in particular ways, often with state agencies. The PSU process that Jung Mei and Tony were talking about, uh, which involves a partnership between a foreign organization and a professional supervisory agency, an organ of the Chinese government, 
or a related group uh, in order to get the registration from public security. That partnership has to be set up. Uh, that's a particular kind of way of managing foreign NGOs and foundations to link them to government agencies, which are then responsible and which are then often, sometimes, not all the time, reluctant to carry on that role. It all leads in the direction of social service delivery and uh, social management tasks. And it leads uh, over time, not necessarily immediately, uh, to a further reduction in advocacy activities. Now, those lines are not easy. Um, there are many in China and at least some in the foreign community that have trouble figuring out what the blurred lines, the changing lines are between social service delivery with an element of policy advocacy which is allowed and crossing the line into advocacy that leads to serious trouble. Usually serious trouble for Chinese partners. Occasionally serious troubles for the foreign NGOs and foundations. Those lines are not entirely clear and it's an element of discretionary party and state regulation that those lines are not supposed to be clear. Those lines can move according to policy. But I think that the way in which the overseas NGOs and foundations are being treated is in this direction of, again, what I wind up calling less civil society, more third sector. Um, and I think we're seeing that across the board, um, combined with a highly discretionary legal regime on both sides, domestic and foreign. That discretion on the foreign side is being used right now to register most organizations that are currently in China and through so-called temporary activities or project activities, a range of organizations that conduct projects in China but don't have an office. Mm. Is there a gap between the 400 or so that have offices registered and the several hundred more that have project activities and the figures that sometimes come up, 7,000, 10,000 organizations involved in China, I actually have never believed the 7,000 figure or the yeah. 10,000 figure. I think those are derived from Ministry of Civil Affairs statistics that are cumulative statistics yeah. over many years, not year-by-year -year statistics. Um, but I think that what public security wants to do is to get everyone under the umbrella and then over time figure out who gets to be told that they can't do quite specific things. Now, the overseas foundations are in a bit of a bind. Um, as I agree with Yongmei, the domestic foundations are not going to take over the full range of activities with Chinese partners, especially on policy advocacy, work with the academic side, think tanks, etc., that the foreign foundations are doing. But the scope for work for the foreign foundations in China, with the possible exception of Gates, which has always operated in China in a different way, the scope of activity for the foreign foundations is not expanding. And at some point, the foreign foundations, both those in China and those that are still trying, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, to give into China from outside China, they're at some point going to have to decide whether they have enough freedom of activity, enough possible interesting grants to make under the new framework, the new situation, whether or not it's worth continuing. I don't think those decisions are going to be made immediately, but we are in a qualitatively different period now.
Yeah, I think, I mean, I would tend to agree with you. I, I was always stunned by these figures of 7,000 foreign NGOs, and I, I, I could never quite believe it. I mean, the key, and, and the challenge has always been with the uh, supervisory units. And, uh, you know, again, if I, if I was in a Chinese organization, why take on the trouble of mm -hmm. some foreign or it can only be bad for me. Yeah. So I think, you know, that is also a real constraining factor. And I, I can, I say, can I say I agree with that, but there's several interesting exceptions. Mm -hmm. In general, the Chinese partners have been cautious, sometimes reluctant to take on this role. Yeah. But there's interesting exceptions. First is a group of, small group of government agencies that decided at the end of 2016 that their mission was to keep their foreign partners. The best example of this is the State Forestry Administration. Yes, that's, mm -hmm. that's Which true. was the only mm -hmm. agency, the only forthcoming PSU, to meet with their Chinese partners before January 1st, 2017, World Wildlife Fund and the others, and to in effect say, this was December 5th, 6th, 2016, and to, in effect, say to their foreign partners, don't you dare go anywhere else. You're with us. Others said that quietly. Gates's partner said that to Gates, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a few that were very assertive in terms of keeping the relationships. Even more interesting are organizations that had lost a role. And with the advent of the overseas NGO law, regained a role being the partner for foreign organizations. And the best example of that is the organization which, with Ministry of Public Security support, has become the key partner for foreign philanthropy in China. And that's Duiwaiyuxie, the Chinese Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries, which is an organization that anyone who knows Duiwaiyuxie from the early 80s to about two years ago would agree is an organization that had fallen into the shadows, shall we say. Still the beautiful compound where... Uh, uh, Agnes Smedley and Rui Alley and others lived uh, in the 50s and 60s, uh, but they had fallen into the shadows. They have come out of the shadows, hosting Ford, hosting the Asia Foundation, hosting Give to Asia, and 10 other organizations, actually now 11 other organizations, on the philanthropic front. So I agree, there's reluctance on the part of the partners, but there's two other kinds of interesting examples. Those that were assertive about keeping their relationships knowing that their foreign partners were going to get registered, World Wildlife Fund and the others. And then even more interesting, what I call the organizational entrepreneurs who decided that this was an opportunity to come back. Yeah, the Friendship Association is the best example of that. I think they're great examples. Forestry is interesting because it's sort of taken on the role as the leader of conservation movement within China. So a whole – but what I'm not sure about is with the latest government reorganization – where in earth forestry has finished up. And I know, for example, National Geographic, who are trying to get registered in China, have been said by forestry, you know, come to us, you know, come to us and we'll, we'll help you. But, you know, working out where forestry has finished up in this new government organization, I think is going to throw the proverbial <coughs> spanner in the wheel. I mean, I, I could have lots of other questions and so I'll hold myself back. I think one of the interesting areas, though, is also with Belt and Road, uh, whether there's a niche there for international foreign organizations to sort of work with Chinese partners as China tries to become more international, become more global, profile more 
of its ideas. And I, I think it's an interesting area we could explore. But I do want to give time uh, to open up to people with issues from the floor. And uh, <coughs> please, uh, when you have a question, make sure it ends in a question mark. Let us know who you are. And also, please use the microphone, unlike I did when I first started talking, because this is being recorded. So please, who would like to uh, raise a question or a comment uh, to start us off here? Yes, there's a gentleman here. Uh, if we could uh, just bring him up. Then. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, Mark, I just have a question. Sir, let us know who you are. Oh, my name is Arturo Reynoso from the community. And uh, just uh, out of concern for the, the government and that interaction with the foreigners, so to speak, uh, were there any concerns that prompted any narrative that prompted the government to set up these national security, uh, these agencies, these NGOs, until the national security system? Any dark side to that? Any regime change in the works that they may have been concerned about? I mean, there's a, there is a long history to this, and um, it, there's lots of ways of stating this. I tend to write about it in terms of party concern about the so-called color, color revolutions. And that goes back a long ways. Um, and it's a strand that shows up in terms of party and government thinking and the sense that foreign NGOs and foundations, not everyone holds this view, of course, um, uh, were fomenters of color revolutions in Eastern Europe. And then the color revolutions moved closer, Burma, uh, Hong Kong, Occupy Central, etc. That's a strand that was taken up by a group that I call the public security intellectuals, mm-hmm. which are centered on the uh, the public security university in Beijing, and a group that I've had a lot of contact with over the past couple of years, and a really interesting group of people. Um, but they've emphasized the color revolution theme. And the color revolution theme then, in a sense, says, uh, since our party is under danger from the cult color revolutions around the world, and NGOs and foundations played a role, Soros, etc., with the color revolutions, that becomes a national security topic. That's sort of one formulation that gets you there. Uh, There's probably others as well, but that's the one I've tended to focus on, in part because I have been doing some reading in what I call the public security intellectuals who focus on NGOs as opposed to the non-public security intellectuals from Beida or Tsinghua or the Academy of Social Sciences who focus on NGOs and whose perspective is very different even though they are situated three miles from each other from Beijing and they never talk, ever, which is really interesting too. Anyway, I'm going to yeah, turn think, it over to Yongwei uh, to see if she has any questions. I mean, I think... Um, that your mark is right where this became into a specific focus more recently. You know, Mark and I know there's a much longer history. I mean, we were under suspicion in the 80s and in the 90s uh, when working there. But I think it also goes to a deeper train within, uh, you know, Communist Party thinking. You have to remember the Communist Party never makes a mistake. Uh, So if something goes wrong, it's someone else's fault. And... uh, you know, it's either right opportunists, left adventurists, or the foreigners. And so there's always been sort of underlying in this the idea that somewhere 
the foreigners must be involved if there was a mistake. So the, the movement that Mark alluded to in Hong Kong and, and so on and so forth. I mean, so there's a long uh, area of suspicion. But I think the other important thing that Mark mentioned is this, there is a huge diversity of views within China. And, of course, once this did become a public security issue or state security issue, it's not surprising uh, that the views of those working within that system become a kind of dominant voice uh, in the framing. I don't know if you may, if you have a comment. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, the two professors already mentioned the, the political, the cultural revolution things. But uh, from my point of view, I would like to say, actually, is another reason is related to the social wealthy raising. Because actually, the... Um, I, I, I should say the, the civil society or the NGO is not the long history concept in China. So actually, the national security or the government really think the value of the foreign NGO is the money. Yeah, it's the, they know it is the impact. I mean, the impact is from the, the good way and the bad way. But actually, they, they really think the value of the most valuable of the foreign NGO is the money. So they think uh, now the government or the social society or social wealthy is wealthy enough so we can do the projects by ourselves. We can provide the service by our own organizations. So we don't need a lot of money from the foreign NGOs. And we just uh, keep some of them have the, to keep the international reputation, cooperation, and relationship. It, it means we don't need so much money from the overseas. So I think that is another reason I would like to add. I think that's interesting, though, in light of what you both said earlier, and particularly you, Yongmei, that a lot of the experience has also been best practices and ways of dealing with challenges other than just money. And so that kind of thinking might cut China off to understanding some of the kind of best practices yeah. with dealing with challenges as it moves forward. Uh, yes, we have a lady there who's got the hand up next to Julian. Then we'll come to the gentleman in the front. Three and then four. So one, two. Um, I'm Carolyn Reeves from the Fairbank Center, um, and my specialty is Chinese charity, the tradition of Chinese charity. Uh, I'm very interested uh, in light of the recent declaration of the new, uh, let's see, one is the Agency on International Development Coordination. And then the, also the new Ministry on Emergency Disaster Relief. Mm -hmm. uh, two more agent, two more, two more institutes or agencies. Uh, the difference is, of course, important. That's, that have been announced in China. I mean, this this whole movement towards more articulation, more oversight of society and services back from the bad old days when things were developing so quickly and there was no chance to develop these institutions over oversight. How does this play into um, just the general direction you see of third sector civil society? And isn't this a good thing that it's no longer the wild, wild west where anything can happen and anybody can get a handle? Certainly we wouldn't allow that in the United States. I'm sorry, it wasn't yeah. a clear question. Yes. The question yeah. is, isn't this movement <coughs> towards regulation of INGOs and charity within China simply a progression towards more oversight 
by a government that, in a sense, has been left behind by the speed and, and, and ferocity of development. Mm-hmm. So isn't this just normal, even in Western terms? There's obviously something to be said for predictability. There's something to be said for frameworks of policy and regulation trying, struggling to catch up with the reality on the ground. And, I mean, as everyone here knows, that's what happens in China, Vietnam, and other countries, uh, is that there's tremendous velocity on the ground uh, and regulation and policies trying to keep up with that. And there is nothing wrong with either of those things. Um, And if you talk to the foreign foundations and NGOs in China, uh, privately as well as publicly, they will emphasize the predictability. They will emphasize that in many cases uh, their status was not entirely clear before January 2017, and their status has become clear now, uh, and that the rules are clearer. And having complained for many years that rules were unclear, whether it's in the business environment or the NGO environment or the foundation environment, yeah, I think that there's some value to the predictability. Um, the question you raise about the organ- reorganization, which Tony has also raised, is an interesting question because we don't entirely know how that's going to affect. We're sort of talking about two planes of activity here. Um, you have to feel sorry in some sense for the Ministry of Civil Affairs, and it may be that, that only a few of us in the room have had extensive contact with the Ministry of Civil Affairs over the years, but they do a lot of work on these issues, and then fundamentally the issues move away into more powerful agencies. And that's what happened with overseas NGOs and foundations. They were more or less in charge of this for 20 years, and then it got taken away. And it's what happened with emergency management. After two decades of work with the Asia Foundation and others on emergency management and new public service models for emergency management accelerating after 2008, now emergency management has moved off into a new ministry with pieces of civil affairs and lots of others. How that's going to affect the foreign NGOs and foundations, we can't be sure of yet, except that these new agencies will become PSUs. They will become professional supervisory partner units that can partner with foreign NGOs and foundations. It's not going to happen immediately because they've got to get set up. Um, so it's going to take s- at least some months for it to happen. But as they expand the partner list, which they're going to do at the end of this year, at the end of 2018, as they expand the partner list, the Chinese agencies and groups that can work with overseas NGOs and foundations, these new structures will be on that partner list. But there will be a lot of others as well because the initial list was very narrow uh, and not easy to work with, and so they're going to expand that list. How that affects forestry and others, we're just going to have to wait and see. There is even, uh, Beijing's a pretty conspiratorial place, as some of you know, all of you know. There is even, um, among those who follow this really closely in Beijing, the thinking, and I think this may be paranoid myself, that the reason why state forestry was so forward, so aggressive in reaching out to their partners at the end of 2016, World Wildlife Fund and the other others, and basically saying, we're registering you, we're registering you in January if we can, before Spring Festival. Uh, you're with us. Don't go anywhere. 
is that forestry knew that something was coming down within the next year and a half that would involve a reorganization and that their prospects in reorganization would be better if they kept World Wildlife Fund, International Union for the Conservation of Nature, there's three or four other organizations that were at that December meeting. So there's a whole interesting byplay of institutional politics here, uh, which has played out in terms of the overseas NGOs and foundations. And I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you. Uh, if my understanding is correct, I think it is uh, related to the foundations, or we call it the governmental agency's relationship with the government. So actually, they take the functions or they do the programs uh, consistent with the governmental priorities. So actually, they got the strong support from the government. Uh, as I mentioned that, uh, yeah, because the economic grows quickly and the social wealth is huge, gets bigger and bigger, it, but it doesn't mean it will just uh, cover the, all the areas, all the functions uh, used, uh, supported by the foreign NGOs. Actually, the government would like to use these two law, I mean the charity law and the INGO law, to reshape the civil society, all the NGOs work in China, and not only the foreign NGOs and the domestic NGOs, because they supported uh, some NGOs, I mean the charitable giving and also the service provider, so which means those organizations can develop quickly, can uh, attract a lot of funding and the good staffs. So, but those advocacy uh, NGOs, how can they survive and still can develop? So it will be definitely uh, swallowed or eaten by those kind of the NGOs. So that is the might uh, one other possibility happened in the future. So. My name is Barry Lundgren, former Swedish ambassador to China. And I believe that the Swedish NGO foundation, the Raoul Wallenberg Institute for Human Rights, was the first Western organization set up in, in, in Beijing. That's some 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I've been involved with it over the years, and I'm on the board of it these days. But uh, it has always been difficult for them to organize and support the register. Uh, but they have had a large program, $1.5 million a year like that, for never any advocacy kind of work, but uh, training, like, like procurators, mm -hmm. and also running a very good program, a data uh, master program in, in international law with a focus on human rights. But the, the space has been shrinking and shrinking recently, as such a new law. For them to get registered, they are very pessimistic. They have now some ad hoc projects that they are running, but they cannot register, so they cannot appoint a new uh, manager or the office and so forth. And I cannot uh, but think that uh, they will be gone. Mm -hmm. And I don't, uh, even though they do very excellent work, I must say. And I think also due to my act inactive, like I've met many times with the, the procurators kind of people, they have been impressed by the training, so professionally they have learned something. So there is a deeper kind of reason behind this, of course, and you have the whole notion of stability, which is sort of an endless kind of thing. But you have a more nationalistic mood in China. Why should we allow them to happen to be there and so forth? You mentioned the color revolution. So, uh, uh, and of course, you can also put it into a wider context of the, this, the now, now the new social uh, um, credit system, registering everyone and facial recognition and so forth, if you like. Uh, but my question to you, if you look for the deeper reasons, I mean, there seems to be no end to this urge for stability. Uh, and uh, 
and, and also the more nationalistic tone and projection of China. But uh, so I mean, one thing is to regi register, regulate, bring order. But this, this, there's less and less peace. So if you can comment further on what you think is really driving this, it would be interesting to hear. By the way, those 300 plus that you have today, I was in Beijing a couple of weeks ago, it's like chambers of commerce. It's like uh, different, very different from a, a human rights uh, focused law, law oriented organization. Thank you. Um, yeah, that is a not easy question <laughs> yeah, to answer. Yeah, um, I think it is just, uh, as I mentioned, uh, um, it is because the Chinese government would like to control and they think they are wealthy enough, and they really think the value of the foreign NGO is the money, and they know it is some best practice, and they train the people, they influence the, the think tank persons, they have a lot of trainings, the good program with the universities, but the universities' the influence had the huge impact for the new generation. We know what happened in China in the past, so actually the new generation, I mean the students, can uh, can make some huge trouble or difference. So actually that is the main area they would like to control. And so even we think some programs are really excellent and uh, really have the huge impact. But uh, that may be the reason why they cannot get the registration because they focus on the more focus on the human rights, which means related to the advocacy. The advocacy need to just uh, change the society, not only to provide the service and uh, charitable giving. So that is, I think it is not uh, uh, consistent with the priority of the government. So if the government is, is, is wealthy enough, they, they will just uh, not give a lot of space on those organizations to carry on their programs. That is just my guess. I agree with what Yongmei is saying. Couple more things to say. First of all, for those of you who do not know Borja Lundgren, you should meet him. He is a <laughs> legendary figure, Swedish ambassador to China, Swedish ambassador to Vietnam, uh, former director general of the Swedish foreign aid uh, agency, Swedish CETA. Some of you, most of you know it as Swedish CETA. Um, and a truly nice guy. So uh, you, should, you should meet Borea and talk with Borea if you have a chance. Um, there's a middle group of organizations that are having some trouble getting registered. I have to, probably for the first time in 30 years, disagree with you a little bit. The organizations that have been registered are wider than chambers of commerce. Um, they include organizations that have been investigated by state security and public security in the past, which actually turns out not to be a bad thing. Um, so those now 400, 400 plus organizations that have been registered range from chambers of commerce and software associations and soybean associations across to foundations that have done challenging work in China. And then there's organizations on the other end, this is sort of a typology, um, I'm not sure it's the way that public security would put this typology, but it's the way I think about it. Organizations that just aren't going to get registered. Um, and, the, I mean, there's a group of 10 or 15 organizations, maybe a bit more, Soros and others. And we all know who those kinds of organizations are. Um, some of them remain active in China. Some of them do not. And then there's the middle group, which is an interesting middle group. And the Swedish Human Rights Group is an example of the relatively narrow 
a middle group that for various reasons is having trouble getting registered but is doing a series of activities under what we call temporary activities or project activities. That doesn't mean they're not going to get registered. It doesn't mean they will get registered. It does mean that they have trouble establishing the ties to a Chinese partner agency that would allow that process to go forward. That may be based on the work they've done, i.e. human rights training. It may also be because of a certain resistance in the past to get too involved with Chinese state agencies. Um, and that's true with some of the rights-related foreign organizations. But that middle group is a really interesting group, and you've identified the Swedish Human Rights Group as one of those that is in Beijing with an office, with staff. They may be being called consultants or something like that now, um, and is having trouble getting registered. But the 400 or so that have been registered span a pretty wide range, and we know the typology on the other side the groups that, if they apply, are not going to get registered. It's the middle group which is in some ways the most interesting. And frankly, I think that because the current goal is to bring as many groups who are not barred from being in China under the umbrella, I think a number of these groups will actually get registered <coughs> over the next year or two. But it hasn't been easy. Uh, hi, my name is Susie. I'm a student from Kennedy School. So just to build on the previous uh, questions, we know the foreign NGO before, they cover a lot of sensitive fields that domestic NGO don't want to cover. For example, uh, the human rights and refugee and feminism. But now because the foreign NGO is strictly constrained, so how do you see, like, um, do you see is it possible for a domestic NGO to fill the gaps? in the sensitive fields. And for those foreign NGOs who cannot be registered now, uh, do, do you see it is possible for them to cooperate with domestic NGOs to help them to do some fundraising or something? Thank you. Um, I think that is an interesting question. From my point of view, I don't think it is the, um, the domestic NGO were told by the foreign NGOs to do some sensitive things. But uh, the initiative to do the thing, they think it is interesting and benefit to their own community. For example, disadvantaged, uh, no, I mean the disabled people, LGBTI people, and domestic uh, violence uh, victims. So actually, they care about their community interest and benefit. So they do the things no matter what kind of the support, and with or without the foreign NGOs, because they need to survive. They need to live decently. So actually, they definitely will continue the work. But uh, with the foreign NGO, their life will be much more easier, because the fund, they have the very advanced uh, opinion and have the stable uh, support. But without some foreign NGO support, they need to find a way to survive. Some of the NGOs, they really started their survival plan. They divided their works into different parts, and they tried to get some of their works 
registered as a domestic NGO, I mean, the, according to the law, and then they can get the funding from the government, from the domestic foundation, and even from the registered foreign NGO rep office. But even some of them cannot just uh, get the registration so easily in the near future. We know that actually uh, we have the September 9th day, so actually people use the WeChat to do the fundraising, which is just, uh, we call it the gray area. It's not prohibited by law, but it's not just uh, really fit into the charity law. So, but they coped with some uh, charitable organization foundation to do the fundraising. So I think, uh, yeah, they have a lot of way for them to survive. But the question is, I talked with a lot of grassroots NGO. Their problem is not only the survive. Their problem is whether or not they can continue their mission. If they need to just um, change their mission to do the um, survival things, for example, they just uh, focus on the, uh, the part of the work, they get the registration, but uh, their main mission is just uh, to involve the into the advocacy, legislation work, whether or not they should continue. Oh, they just uh, don't get the registration to continue their uh, individual work. I mean, so that is their choice. I don't think those organizations, they were told to do things. They just initiative by their interest in to do such work. This point's very important, um, and I agree entirely with Yongmei. Survival is one thing, but adherence to mission is a separate thing. And uh, the reduction and availability of foreign resources that has enabled a variety of advocacy uh, social organizations of various kinds in China to carry out their social justice or advocacy mission, that will be under threat as the number of foreign foundations or the range in which they can work begins to change gradually, or certain groups that are not allowed to register in China um, decide, as I think they should, not to endanger their Chinese partners by sending money in in contravention of Chinese legal requirements. At that point, organizations have to think about survival and have to think about mission I have to think about taking uh, the Gomai Fu, uh, contracted funds from the government, have to think about fundraising. Fundraising within China is unlikely to be as targeted toward harder core social justice mission for a number of organizations and perhaps more generally humanitarian. That issue, which NGOs face in countries around the world, is, I think, a key issue going forward. They can figure out how to survive. They can do commercialization activities. I was in Shanghai last week talking with several organizations that are busily setting up commercialization activities because they're anticipating that foreign funding is going to go down over the next couple of years. They can find other ways to get money, but can they find other ways of carrying out their mission? Yeah, I think this is very important. But, I mean, I wouldn't take agency away from the Chinese people. I mean, that, to me, is the most important thing. It's not as if the foreigners have discovered these problems and so on. Now, mm. okay, maybe they played a role in certain ways. And these challenges in society are not going to go away. Yeah. And uh, the one thing we do know about Chinese society, it's incredibly inventive. And you know, whether it's registering in a different way or organizing in a different way, um, you know, on the whole, going back to Caroline's question, I, I do think in the Chinese context, 
having the law is better than not having the law because it does legitimize the field. And what we do know is that over time, things tend to relax, people find ways around, they work out how it operates, how you deal with things, and so forth. And so I think a lot of the challenges in uh, marginalized uh, interests and communities, they're not going to go away. And, you know, it's not that foreigners discovered these issues and funded them and promoted issues around them. So, you know, I mean, maybe... Maybe it'd be a rougher period moving ahead, but I think longer term, I think many of these issues will remain, and I think Chinese groups and organizations will find ways to deal with them. And what we're leaving out a lot of this conversation is there are huge numbers of community-based organizations that don't appear on anybody's radar, that the party isn't particularly worried about. I mean, if you go to most villages in China, you know, most of the reciprocity, most of the giving is organized around the temple, the miao or the hui. It's not organized around the party offices. And those carry on, you know, unabated. Um, yeah. <coughs> My name is Lincoln Chen, and I'm with the China Medical Board. Tony Sage is our board chair. So <laughs> he will be able to address some of this. I have two questions for you very quickly. One is the nature of the Chinese government. It is true that public security has taken control of the foreign NGOs like us. But uh, when we shifted from civil affairs to public security, uh, it was just simply a paper filling out a new form, same form but to a new addressee. And actually the more powerful ministry with us is the health ministry because they spend much more time scrutinizing our work. And then there are other arms of the Chinese government that will affect our work. For example, we set up the Tibet Medical School but we can't get the Tibetans to come to our meetings in Beijing any longer because they have to get public security in the provincial level to be able to travel outside of the province. So there are these other arms of the Chinese government far more onerous on us than public security, which seems like for us at least a last gap kind of protecting state security. But they don't deal with the health people and they allow the ministry technical ministries to deal with that. So that's one question to you. Are you overemphasizing the public security control element in your presentation? And Young Mei, I wanted to talk a bit about the foreign ideas mm -hmm. in civil society in China because there's a huge pushback in the universities that the faculty have to declare all foreign curricular materials, all foreign faculty exchange. Yeah. So the problem is not so much foreign money, it's also the contamination of foreign ideas in China. And that's huge because we work with the universities and there's real reticence on the part of the university people now to demonstrate any affinity or association with foreign ideas. Okay, so it's not any longer, you know, X with Chinese characteristics. It's a question of Chinese way or no way. <laughs> um, and by the way, I just conclude with the question on foreigners by saying, I don't think China is unique in this regard. We have offices in Thailand and in Vietnam. The Vietnam system is exactly the same as China, exactly, to the, almost to the form, the, the, the filling out of the registration form. But the public security has actually invaded our offices mm -hmm. and gone through our drawers in Hanoi, okay? They haven't done that in Beijing. And, of course, in Thailand, it's getting more and more restrictive, the registration and the oversight of foreign foundations on the foreign idea side. 
Well, on the institutional side first, and very quickly, because uh, I know we're reaching the end here. Um, there were really two different ideas in public security when they spent that intensive year drafting this statute. One idea is what they wound up with, which is that every organization has to have a Chinese partner, and that Chinese partner is primarily responsible for figuring out what the foreign organization is doing. Gets complex when they work in multiple fields, gets complex when they work across multiple geographic boundaries in China. But it's the partner organization, Ministry of Health, uh, Friendship Association, State Forestry Bureau, et cetera, that has the primary responsibility and is legally responsible to the Ministry of Public Security. So it is correct that Ministry of Public Security is not looking at the documents on a day-to-day -day basis the same way as the partner is. But the other view was direct registration with the Ministry of Public Security so that the Ministry of Public Security would be playing the role that Lincoln is talking about the Ministry of Health playing. And eventually, the view won over that you needed to have professional partners and that professional partners were better able to enable public security to focus on the real problems, the real problems not being the China Medical Board. Um, and... Um, and let the partners handle most day-to-day -day work, and that public security would be available to deal with the overall picture with the decision about whether or not to allow an organization to stay or remain in China, um, and to be able to come in and out uh, as they needed to. Um, the partner problem, which Yongmei and Tony were talking about before, the partner problem is real. Uh, there are a number of organizations that won't serve in that partnership role because it is a role of significant responsibility. Um, public security is above that, in effect, overseeing the partnership um, and um, staying very well informed. The learning curve at public security was very high, and they have surmounted largely the learning curve. There are still pieces intermediary funders like Give to Asia or United Way International or groups like that where they haven't quite figured out what to do. The problem of American and other think tanks that are based in universities, they haven't quite figured out what to do. But for the most part, public security has learned a tremendous amount over the past two years in reliance on the partner organizations that are working with the foreign NGOs. And I'm going to turn the foreign contamination issue over to Yongmei. Okay. Thank you. I would like to add just one point. Actually, uh, I think the National Security Department, uh, their function is to the final point to say no. But it doesn't mean the National Security Department covered all the responsibilities. So which means actually the, the ministry and the department, they have their conflict of interest. The National uh, Department cannot just be responsible for all of these functions, but they definitely is the last step to say no for the foreign NGOs to get the registration. And back to your foreign ideas, I should say I don't think uh, uh, the professors, academic persons, or even the students are happy about the stop the exchange program and activities. But uh, in the university or academic institute, the person who in charge of the foreign affairs or exchange programs, they might not be the academic person. So they have their administrative responsibilities. Why, if I'm in that position, why need I take the trouble? And I cannot be benefit from this program. And so 
I will I will probably say no because I'm just uh, the administrative person and I don't so care about the academic development and the foreign ideas. I don't think I don't see any value or I don't care about those values. So that is I think the different person in different positions they have the different interest. So I don't think the professors, students, academic institutes the academic person are happy about the change, but the administrative person, they need to control their risk about their job. Yeah, I think that's important across the board. And, uh, you know, there's always a lot of second guessing going on. And I think if you're in any system, it's better to be restrictive and tougher than not, because you're less likely to get blamed with that. But, you know, institutions and things begin to tire over time. And Keeping up the intensity of oversight and effort uh, often begins to sort of relax, unless you're in a particular campaign, and things will often ebb and uh, flow with that. And on well, the question of foreign ideas, you know, I'm not sure things like rights is necessarily a foreign idea. And you know, Matya Sen has done a lot of work on this, showing that, you know, a lot of these values are within different cultures. And I, I think what, you know, Chinese scholars, and I already see it beginning to happen. You know, they're not using necessarily universal uh, languages to promote ideas of rights and defending rights. They start quoting from their own Chinese classics and their traditions, which begin to show many of, of, of the very same things. And I think we're going to see that. On the last point, on uh, toughness of regulations, I mean, I think, uh, we all know, uh, when Egypt was drafting its regulations to govern uh, foreign NGOs, they sent a group to visit us at Ford Foundation in China because they figured China must have the toughest regulations of anybody. And were horrified to find how lax and weak <laughs> the oversight and regulation was and the fact that, you know, we only reported twice a year to the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. They didn't even bother reading the reports. They didn't re pre-approve grants and so on. And then they discovered India, where you had to pre-report all your uh, activities and investments before they could be approved. And so they dropped China and started thinking, well, maybe India is a better bet or, or somewhere else. So, yeah, so I think the thing is, yes, it's an area which is viewed with suspicion uh, around the world. Yeah. On the other hand, when they're in trouble, like in the healthcare system, they're very avid for the most advanced yeah, ideas sure. for quality clinical practice in yeah. the United oh, States. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're avidly seeking that. Yeah. So how are they going to navigate well, which ideas to keep out, mm -hmm. which ideas well, to inculcate? No, I mean... That's schizophrenia across the board. We, you know, our, we did training programs to Chinese government officials for many years, and it got stopped. The next thing we got told was, you know, the Development Research Center of the State Council then came to us and said, well, okay, training is stopped, but research isn't. So can we start sending people to come and do research at your institution? The Ministry of Science and Technology then heard that, and they said, well, maybe we could send people to come and do research, and so on and so forth. So there's always a way. Anyway... Uh, we are past the bewitching hour, so please join me again in thanking Mark and Youngwei for spending the time with us. You've been listening to Ashcast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, 
please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.